there were these messages coming out that were basically telling the Taiwanese to stay home because they could get sick from the flu, from the from the what was then called the Wuhan virus. And we looked at that as a voter suppression technique. And we mapped it and tracked it. We tracked that narrative as a voter suppression technique. And so we were we were observing um, the disinformation about COVID coterminous with its appearance in the global space. I really wish we could get away from the um, the kind of this this tale told about the California libertarians setting the terms for the debate and all of the people who in the last couple of years who have all made all these mea culpas and apologies for being overly optimistic and now being pessimistic. I mean, I'm just so sick of it. to this podcast i'm speaking with somebody i've known for i think close upon two decades ivan siegel is the executive director of global voices and many listeners may not know but i've been following ivan for more than what global voices does he has done some amazing work around karachi and other places looking at those cities and those spaces and places through photography multimedia productions video and cultural tropes um, as well, cultural productions that really interrogate a time, a context, a space, and a place. So, Ivan, thanks very much. I hope that did some justice to what you what you do and what you are. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be here. Um, so, I, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast series that I've shared with the guests on it is that I wanted to focus a bit on the world of technology and the world of society and politics through a global south or global majority perspective, which is something that you are acutely familiar familiar with um, through Global Voices and also through your other work. So I'm not going, I mean, listeners can obviously go to Global Voices and find out more. I'm assuming that just because they're listening to this podcast, they're somewhat aware of uh, Global Voices as a platform, if not you as the executive director. So the question I want to ask is not so much about the genesis and the story of Global Voices, but more specifically, given that we are recording this mid-2022 and that we've been through a fairly extraordinarily time, you know, time, an unprecedented time, to ask you what if anything has changed around Global Voices as a consequence of the pandemic and having been through now two and a half years of this extraordinary turmoil in our both personal lives, but also social, political, communal, contextual lives? Well, Global Voices in a lot of ways was fit for purpose for the pandemic because we were always a virtual distributed community a collective of writers, translators, and activists. So we actually didn't need to change much in terms of our organizational model if anything uh in fact we continued on and in fact we were able to contribute i think especially in the early days to a discussion and understanding of the narratives of how covid of of the presence of covid in um in global discourse and global awareness um, and we did that by not by uh, through a kind of a comparative approach in which we looked at the presence, the expansion, the discussion of, of COVID from many different countries and uh, comparing narratives, comparing perspectives on them, and then starting to look at 
cross-cultural and cross-country analysis and, and both in our writing and in our research. Interestingly, we actually came across early narratives of COVID in Taiwan in 2019, um, in, early, in January 2020, because we were doing a, a research study about narratives during the Taiwanese elections that happened um, at that time period. And we saw, um, we saw this spread of Chinese misinformation that happened in, uh, around the Taiwanese election, in which um, the, there were these messages coming out that were basically telling the Taiwanese to stay home because they could get sick from the flu, from, the, from the, what was then called the Wuhan virus. And we looked at that as a voter suppression technique. And right. we mapped it and tracked it. We tracked that narrative as a voter suppression technique. And so we were we were observing um, the disinformation about COVID coterminous with its appearance in the global space. In some ways, the disinformation appeared before the information did about COVID. And its earliest manifestations were explicitly to try to manipulate, which is a which is a a phenomenon I've been I've been reflecting on recently, as I talk to a new generation of people who are starting to study and understand uh, various forms of dysfunction in media ecosystems, and generally people tend to date their experience, their understanding of what happens with their the, when they first begin to study it. So many people think that you know internet shutdowns are a new thing. The first one I'm aware of is from Cargo. The Cargill War in 1999, <clears throat> yeah. when the Indians shut, shut yeah. down the internet in, yeah. in, around in in um, you know in uh, India in in Kashmir. India in Ladakh yeah. in yeah, Kashmir Ladakh. specifically. Yeah. yeah, I was an undergrad and, student at the time, and I know. <laughs> and you, so you know, but very I, few people, but yeah. most people, you know, were dating it from like 2007, yeah. 2008, 2009. Yeah. But then I, I of course say, well, no, the first website I know of that was spoofed by a government was Kazakhstan in 2000. But that's because I lived there. So probably this stuff was happening before then. And now I've decided that essentially all of the things, all of the dysfunctions that we're talking about happened at the moment of genesis in which the technology was created, or very shortly thereafter. We should assume that that's, that's probably the right timeline. So this narrative that we have about technology being good and then bad is generally wrong. Generally, the good and the bad happen at the same time at the genesis of the technologies yeah. or the socio-technological relationships. It's, it's just that... Yeah studying it and mapping it and understanding it depends on what we look at and who we listen to. What is the source of our knowledge? Who is generating that knowledge? So a lot of what Global Voices has done in this space is to ask that question, whose knowledge, whose information, and to seek to listen and to amplify those perspectives and to say, are you aware that this thought happened here as well? Here's a way of understanding it. Here's how the Indian and, the, and Brazilian narratives around um, around prophylactics against COVID are interplaying, interacting with each other in ways that make it more toxic for both societies, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the first year, it really, it really, I think, uh, energized our community in a lot of ways, a lot of really fascinating stories. And then people got tired, of course, because we all did. And um, we went through a cycle of trying to get closer and doing more activities online that weren't directly related to the work of global voices and at a certain point people are just trying to get offline because their entire lives are online it's like mm. okay i spend 12 hours a day at work and then i spend my hobby also yeah. doing exactly <laughs> yeah. the same thing yeah 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 and so there's maybe some i don't know if there's a flagging of enthusiasm of 
I don't think that's necessarily true, but we just have to be careful about asking for what we're asking for and what how people are able to contribute and to be very generous and setting expectations. And, right. Yeah. You know, no, I because, I, I, because life again, is fragile and, and so are all of us. Yeah. And I think these two and a half years have reminded us uh, of that very fact. Uh, I was a student when Kargil um, happened, occurred. I was a student at Delhi University. So that brings back some memories as well. But, you know, as you were talking, it, it also brought back memories of stuff that I've actually publicly talked about. In 1983, when I was five or six, um, I remember the planes coming in with the dead and the dying because we lived near an uh, airfield that became quite important for the troops from the north of Sri Lanka to come to the south of Sri Lanka in order to go to the better hospitals. And I remember that, um, you know, at five or six, my father talking the morning after about how there was a great military victory reported in the newspapers. Whereas we were kept awake at night for, uh, you know, for the longest time with an endless stream of ambulance sirens. And then they stopped the sirens. So the ambulances stopped putting the lights on. And then there was this, you know, um, endless stream of ambulances in the night, in the dark of the night, in the dead of the night, uh, you know, blacked out. And so that was kind of at five or six, Ivan, my introduction to the disconnect in a sense between um, what in the state of Sri Lanka was mainstream reportage and that meta narrative and what they wanted to kind of put out and uh, in a sense what we experienced in the night. So when you're talking, it does bring back a lot of memories in that regard. No, I'm, I'm reminded and I meant actually to go back up and, and to go back and look this book up before talking to you, but I'm reminded that a lot of the many of the ideas that we are so we get so exercised about, you know, in 2022 and 2021 about and actually since 2016 about the the theoretical dysfunction that is happening in in online spaces all of the conditions and terms were set at the beginning and i'm reminded that the tamil tigers you know back in 1996 1997 were some of with tamil net and yeah. the tamil nationalists not the yeah. tamil tigers specifically but the tamil yeah. nationalists Sivara. Sivara. Yeah. Sivara. Sivaram. Yeah. and and uh uh, and Sivaram's work around was actually, you know, that happened at the same year that the New York Times went online. That's right. So it was co it, it, the Tom, the Tamil nationalist movement yep. was one of the first movements, nationalist or you know, political movements, to think about yep. online spaces as both as a sort of place for information, as a place for political fundraising, as a place for organization. And of course, the Malaysian nationalists were doing the same thing. The Mexicans in Chiapas were doing the same thing in the mid '90s. But the Sri Lankan case is, is is especially fascinating because of the strength of the Tamil diaspora that made that 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 connection, that discourse connection between Tamils in India, Tamils in the UK, uh, so particularly vibrant and yeah. pertinent. And and that whole narrative is um, is what you know when I first started studying this work seriously, the Sri Lankan case was one of the ones that I learned the most from. Not just not just from Sivaram's story, but of course that was seminal. But also some of the alternative histories websites that were online, and of course Groundviews was one of them at the time. So you know, I I feel like the the narrative that we have that that is popular in the global north around um, an understanding of how technology works yeah. misses sort of misses the point that all of these things happening simultaneously and in some cases faster and sooner in um, yeah. countries that are not in the global north or however whatever we're calling it 
this month. (laughs) And you know, that's a segue into my second question. Centers of power. Centers of 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 commerce, capital, and power. You know, I I lent a term called global majority, actually, which is kind of resonant as well, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the the question I want to ask Ivan is that, you know, it's it's an interesting, it leans into that. Um, There's a lot, there's so much of talk about what's happening on both sides of the Atlantic today, say after 2016, right? I mean, Brexit and Trump and, you know, the aftermath of all of that um, in the European context, in, in England, plus in the domestic context in, in the United States of America. And, you know, I wanted to kind of flip that on its head and in relation to what we were just talking about, ask you, given, you know, our past is prologue, perhaps, what do you think are things that the global north should be aware of, learning from, tuned into, um, interested in with regards to how the stories and the experiences that they are going through now, thinking it is really for the first time ever, um, maybe better addressed as a consequence of studying what has occurred, you know, in, in other parts of the world, perhaps much longer too. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much to, to be said about this topic. I think maybe one place I can start is, uh, as as you know, but listeners may not, I lived outside of the U.S. for a very long time and never actually was wondered whether I would ever return here at a certain point, um, basically from 1996 until 2007, 2008. I was lived first in the former Soviet Union and then based in South Asia, South, Southeast Asia and worked all over Asia. And a lot of that time I was I spent working with local community based and uh, media outlets, television, radio, um, initially, and then internet projects. And very often in communities and contexts in which uh, the reporters, if they had any, were often um, often had other jobs. So they were teachers and reporters, they were judges and reporters, so mm. they you know they didn't they didn't necessarily have an economic base to have a full-time professional class at the low especially at the local level of journalism and um and of course journalism in many of those communities was a a low paid and low prestige activity Mm. which is one reason why so many of the uh, and this is probably familiar very familiar to you i'm sure so many of of that type of journalist is constantly trying to eke out a living and therefore corruptible and therefore, you know, building built within a patronage network and the political economies of those types of media outlets were always depend, always created this culture of dependency um, for access to resources on information, on advertising tied to the government or on relationships with local power brokers in ways that made their partiality very obvious. Now, that partiality also exists in Western media, but it's blanketed in kind of uh, ret- layers of rhetoric around around uh, idealism and aspirations and universal values and things like that. So it's harder to see. But when I moved to the States uh, at the end of 2007, having just experienced all of this, you know, all of these, all of these kind of very visible cracks in media systems, and then watched, proceeded to watch the American and European media systems fall prey to the same kind of fault lines of economic economic depression, economic restructuring. Mm-hmm. 
it was not a surprise to me at all. It was like, actually, you know, this is the way the rest of the world deals with their media. And there's lots of things that you can learn from that. Um, and your, your, the bubble window that you've had from the 1940s to the, to the two thousands of thinking that this is the way that you've developed a professional class of media and you've developed these values. And now you start to treat them as eternal. And suddenly you find that they're not, that they're highly dependent, highly contingent on all these other forces. And uh, that's a shock, but you know, welcome to the world. Yeah. Friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Um, I'm also reminded about the fact about so much, so much of net regulation and net regulation conversation um, is frustrating because it's either Section 230 or the OSB in the United Kingdom, or it's the new disinformation code in Europe with Brussels. Um, and yes, of course, they're important. But you know, what about the most populous country in the world by 2024? Arguably, yeah. ostensibly, the largest democracy as well. And you know, what 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 voice do they have? You know, I would I I would suggest, and please feel free to contest me on this, that India today poses a greater threat to every conversation that I've heard around democratic regulatory processes and that Gordian knot than anything I've heard around Section 230 or on either sides of the Atlantic, really. I mean, you may be right about that. I, I think I wouldn't contest you directly on that because in, ter in terms of like the sheer number of people affected by Indian regulatory choices, that's absolutely true. The frustrating thing is that whether we like it or not, regulations that are made in the United States or Western Europe, because so many of the global companies are based in those places and follow their rules, have a disproportionate effect on um, on citizens in other countries that are that use those platforms as technology as technologies. And so, whether we whether we like it or not, we have to deal with the Section two hundred and thirty conversation. We have to care about what the Texas state legislator thinks about it, <laughs> That's true. because it does affect. Yeah. It will affect Facebook's policies globally. And if you use, if you're in Myanmar and Facebook is a tool you use or used when you had access to it without a VPN, then you know, then it still matters. And so um, that is really the, you know, the the flip side of the idea that there's a globalized media architecture because globalized is a the term global is is a proxy for centers of power. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it, you know, universal doesn't mean universal, just as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written by a bunch of people in New York with Western values. Like, we may agree with them, we may not agree with them, but we can't deny their historical origins. And talking about history, one thing I wanted to pick your brains on was you're the only guest who has experience for over a decade, I think, in living in Russia. Um, was it the USSR when you were there or was it Russia? Was uh, it? No, it was not. Oh, I first I first made it to the Eastern Bloc in 1990. I was a student in Germany, right? a literature student in Germany, and, I, and the Berlin Wall had just fallen. And I right. made it to Prague in February of 1990. So the Berlin Amazing. Wall fell in 1989, and I yep. made it to Berlin shortly thereafter. And then I was in Czechoslovakia the year it fell apart. Um, I just graduated university and then I was in first made it to Ukraine in 94 and Russia in 94. And then I was I lived there full time from 96 onward, first Russia for a couple of years and then Central Asia. So I had, a, you know, a, a 20, a 2000, 1990 to 2012, basically window of time in which I was living there or there constantly. And as a consequence, um, do you 
have any greater insight into what I call the design of Russian um, narratives. Um, you might call it disinformation, you might not call it disinformation. You know, a lot of people are focused on um, what comes out of the Kremlin, you know, out of RT or on RT or produced by RT and pro-Putin. My concern is with um, it as a, as a blueprint, a template, a design that you can, states can cut their cloth as they see fit. And I, you know, there's some experience with this because when I read about NATO Stratcom output around uh, Russian disinfo in 2016, 2017, and I looked at what I was looking at in Sri Lanka in terms of the narrative manipulation of public attention and its retention, I was like, this is rather strange because everything you're talking about, I can see in Sri Lanka in my language. So that was something really strange. And of course, now in New Zealand, I'm looking at the same thing. And again, for listeners, you know, it's not the RT news, it's the design and its adaptation and adoption by domestic producers to create um, some really harmful narratives. Um, but even outside of that, Ivan, I mean, I, I, you're the only one I can talk, ask the question whether, you know, there are any greater insights as a consequence of the experience, the lived experience you have, that is, I, I suppose, topical to speak of today. I mean, probably not just because I live there, but because this was my field of work and study. So, you know, so I, I have a lot to say about this topic and think about where I can be useful, um, you know, in a relatively short period of time. So the first thing I would say is that the model of the, the, the provocateur that the Russians, the Russians use as a way of creating a confusion or the kind of a, aggressive muddying of information fields, this concept predates technology, the technology changes that we're talking about by far. I mean, this is a, this is, these were, these were Leninist techniques. These, this goes back to, honestly, I just finished, I just finished reading a book about the revolutionaries, the Russian revolutionaries of the 1840s to the 1860s. And a lot of this stuff was, was actually honed and created around the time of Bakunin, you know, the 19th century revolutionary characters by Russia. So it's, it's really old technique, like really old thinking. Um, but it's applied at scale and, you know, to communities that aren't used, aren't inoculated. I'm not really sure that I really like the health metaphors around information, by the way. I kind of slip up sometimes when I use them, but I've decided that they're wrong. And so I try to stop, I stop, try not to use them anymore because um, we should talk about what we're talking about, try to avoid metaphor when we can um, on this stuff. It's hard enough to understand as it is. But the, to, to stick with the provo provocateur idea for a second, I remember, you know, living in, and going to news conferences in in Russia and Central Asia in uh, you know 20 years ago, in which you would have these individuals who were state plants, who were plants from state-affiliated or parastatal media outlets. And these people would stand up and, in the middle of a press conference and start shouting at the, at the presenters and just trying to tear them apart and discomfort them and make them nervous. And they they acted crazy and they acted unhinged and they were being paid to do this and they were being, and their goal was to basically create disorder within an information context. So if the goal and, and that precise model is what the Russians then went on to do first to their own people. So before practicing disinformation and misinformation at a mass scale, internationally, they were doing it within Russia. Blogging networks were filled with 
provocateurs, paid provocateurs in the mid 2000s in Russia. Um, the first the first types of like cyber attacks and information related attacks that I know of in that space was you know, 2006, 2007 in Georgia and in Estonia. Um, and then within the Russian community against opposition activists within Russia itself. And those techniques were honed and grown and financed and expanded. Mm. And they basically went along with the platforms as the platforms became more automated and as the platforms developed more tools to reach more people. The, tech, the, the, the provo provocations did too, but they were following, they were old techniques following scale and, new, and, and following the scale of the platforms and taking advantage of the, of the, um, what the platforms thought of as, uh, as benefits, as, as technologies, you know, to expand knowledge or expand information. But provocation is a form of information too. It's just not what you think it is. <laughs> So that's 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 my starting point on this topic is that, yeah. you know, like there's a huge a huge space for study and and understanding in that way um and once you understand that the the goal of the goal of of the of a of the russian of, of the provocateur yeah. is to be, is to recognize power it's to say i am crazy and i'm lying to you you know i'm lying to you i know i'm lying to you and i'm going to force you to accept my lie anyway because I have more power than you and I will. And so it's a move, it's a, it's a control move. And that's what, that's what the Russians are doing. That's what the Russians have always been doing. Uh, they're just doing it on platforms now. And when you see that, that, that kind of approach, uh, you know, passed on into other cultures and other experiences, it is, it's, it's disorienting yeah. for sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, in my language, we have this word in Sinhalese called chalanair, which, it's sort of a mix between ripple effects and volatility, entropy. It's kind of all of those things together. And when I looked at the media ecology and ecosystem back home, that's what I saw. So it was not necessarily engineered for a particular stochastic outcome, but it was the it was sustaining the volatility. You know, um, it was like popcorn popping all the time never allowing it to be eaten but always popping popcorn so that the pressure was always there and you know that's a for listeners that's the easiest way i can describe and i know that you're nodding away the kind of uh uh things that one sees in the media landscape so i have an interesting thought for you which is that uh in the russian context right now we ask the question about whether russian support for the war is genuine or not um because in 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 the data in the public opinion surveys there a lot of people say that they support the war a majority do depending on what generation you're talking to but that support many of us believe is very thin um it's it's not it's it's responsive or it's performative yeah and um or it's i believe what the person above me says and if that person says x i say it too but if that person changes their mind i will too so it's a it's not actually a deeply held belief it's a public it's a it's a social response um one of the ways we one of the ways of understanding this is uh, there are all of these social media campaigns you know all of these narratives being pushed out by the russian government around the war but they tend to peter out after a week or two they don't seem as if they're being sustained not naturally at least which makes us think that they're paid campaigns they're astroturf 
grass tops, whatever we want to call that. Yeah. And and that the they aren't they aren't they don't have a power or a rhythm of their own. They aren't um, endogenous in some ways. And um, that makes us think those of people who I'm talking to about this makes us think that there's a a kind of a a lack of passion or a lack of belief behind those types of efforts, which is which is. I would say it's what we would expect because there there is uh there is a, a wonderful Russian expression uh which is kaltura and it basically is make work. I pretend to work, you pretend to pay me. Yeah. And a lot of there's another Russian expression was we hope for the best, we got the usual. And so there's this whole kind of um yeah. there's this whole kind of yeah. uh like like diminishment of expectation like grand rhetoric and then you know we still live in a shithole at the end of the day kind of response which li which lives in these layers of irony and satire and yeah. self-awareness and self-doubt that is you know absolutely typical of russian literature or russian culture and if you're not a russian what if you haven't lived in russia or if you don't know russian language or haven't experienced that yep. then you can tend to take those ideas and set at face value yeah uh but it's important to know that 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 everything that you read, you know, in the Russian context, really, you should imagine that it's being it's laced with irony and builder self recrimination and yeah. self hatred and self doubt and all those other things. Which doesn't mean that Russian artillery isn't going to kill the fuck out of you because it will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm reminded. Uh, Pardon my vulgarity. No, no, no. I mean, that's that's quite true, and that's 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 exactly right, isn't it? I mean, I was reminded of uh, some of Reagan's jokes uh, as well. You know. Uh, of Gorbachev and 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 others, and you know, uh, it it also reminded me kind of what you know. I guess the next question is you know from the specificity of Russia to the meta level, meta meaning you know not the company, but you know I, these podcasts have become so difficult with this bloody name. I um, can't believe they took the word yeah, exactly it's right. Australia. I mean, like the bloody but violence. What right do they have to yeah, take the word? Yeah, the chutzpah. Um, uh, when you know, and, and a great violence to what you started doing. Um, I would imagine that Global Voices was dealing with an ecosystem that was re relatively bound together by shared values and notions of of fact, evidence, science, and truth. Um, and today, um, it's splintered. It's epistemically splintered. It's splintered at source. It's splintered in meaning. It's splintered in authority. We tend to conflate trust and truth, and it's a world that you know I can barely understand every day when I do what I do. Much less think about somebody um, who's an average consumer trying to make sense of it all, and then going down rabbit holes as well. So at a, at at that level, Ivan, and also from the gaze of both the granular and the lived through to the meta that you have through Global Voices, my question is a is is perhaps a simple one, but not really. What can at a platform or institutional or societal level one do, if anything, to address the state of play today and the complexity that you and I know exists today? So we've been doing a project with Global Voices for the past three years called the Civic Media Observatory, in which we study uh, we do basically deep readings of narratives and themes and subtext and context in um, in complex media ecosystems. And 
for example, we uh, will pick a theme like the Taiwanese elections in 2019, 2020, and we'll say, here are the top themes that are likely to be relevant to this election. And here are the dominant narratives from the main political parties. And then we will study media items. And a media item could be everything from a, a poster on the wall to a piece of graffiti to a slick video produced by a Chinese PR firm based in Malaysia to a piece of, you know, propaganda coming out of a, uh, a Chinese diaspora community in California. Um, the point is that it's discrete, it has a message, and behind it, there's a narrative. And a narrative is a proxy for ideology. It's not what we are, what we say, it's how we say it. And um, all of the subtextual and um, implicit ideas behind the information that we're sharing because information in the human context is always encoded in culture always encoded in language so we will study that at scale and we'll start to do deep analysis of media items and tag them with narratives and what that gives us over time especially when we do big one like we did a 15 country study of COVID-19 narratives for a year in 12 different an equivalent number of languages and then we cross-tabulated the whole thing in a relational database. And that seems, at first, that seems really, really confusing. But over time, what you realize that you're doing is recontextualizing information and how much work it takes to recontextualize information into a space that you can understand it, to make it understandable, demonstrates the counter effect, which is to what extent information that exists in our social media networks is actually is by version of the by virtue of the 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 news feed and other types of social media architects architectures decontextualized to the point that people mm. really struggle to know how to place those ideas in the in in, in a within a an, an understandable information framework so rather than think about misinformation disinformation is a different story so i'm going to leave that aside for a second because that's intentional yeah but misinformation yeah. which is actually kind of Basically, when we say misinformation, we often mean ignorance. Um, the misinformation space, I have, uh, I have kind of started to think, is really about um, a, a is really a decontextualization problem, and to a secondary but even potentially more important degree, it's a context collapse problem. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like it's not that we don't have information; we do have information. It's that when we see other people talking about things that we know about using other cultural reference in other cultural languages, we get confused, frustrated, angry. Um, we often see just parts of those conversations. We don't see it in a coherent way, nor, nor is it necessarily presented in a coherent way. And so that, that those two forces, the decontextualization and the context collapse, lead us to a place of um, in which we, we we are frustrated. We are frustrated by an, an inability to create an overarching perspective or story or set of functioning narratives that allow us to place that information into a useful form. Now, and that is an epistemic system. Of course, what this tells us, if we think about this for a second, is that it may be true that, and lots of like literary theory scholars will tell us this, that epistemic systems themselves need to be deconstructed in the first place in order to understand that they themselves are constructs, they themselves are fabrications or artifacts. So it's not as if um, 
we don't actually have a language for talking about this. In the, we do have a language for talking about it. It's just that we haven't been applying that type of language in this context. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to recognize this strange balance because there's a lot of useful work that's been done in tearing down or doing deep analysis of, the, of how the, the, the institutional structures of knowledge that we have came to be and why they deserve deep analysis, criticism, skepticism, and so on and so forth, which is different from, but very related to, intimately related to this kind of universe of, of you know, the, the contextualization and clashes of pieces of knowledge and bits of knowledge that we currently, all of us, all of us who live in social media contexts experience. Um, and so trying to rebuild a healthy culture of knowledge is what I is is kind of the thing I always work on, and that's what Global Voices is to me. It's like we started, we stopped allowing people to post without editing a long, long time ago, like a decade ago. Yeah. And so the process of co-writing, co-editing, of listening carefully to people from another part of the world and yeah. writing together, editing together, translating together, it's a way of learning. It's a way of building context. It's a way of building knowledge. Yeah. And in, in an ideal world, for me, that would be that it wouldn't be that everybody would do what we're doing with us. It's that everybody would develop their own forms of that experience and do it the way they want to do it. But still, they would co-build a base of knowledge, you know, in which the experience of building it is what gives you the knowledge. That's 100 percent, Ivan. I mean, I'm reminded of the belies, I think, my age, but I grew up in old media, right? I mean, Sri Lanka had two terrestrial channels. That's it. Um, and that was on VHF. But listeners who understand that. Um, mm -hmm. And we had two uh, broadcast um, radio channels and two newspapers in English and a handful, literally, in Sinhalese and Tamil. And one of the things was that you could just see a page, any section of a page, and you know which paper that was. And you could see a broadcast, any segment of it, and you know which channel, because it had this design aesthetic, right? Terrible stuff, 80s stuff, you know, socialist, mm -hmm. you know, all, all the horrible things that you can imagine. But you knew. And when I look at my newsfeed today, I don't know immediately what that source is. The New York Times looks the same as some junk news, mass-produced bullshit. Really. And so that context conflation, I suppose, those of us our age, you know, in the digital spaces that we inhabit, we have a analog take on a digital phenomenon as well, which is a quite strange in a way. A couple of years ago, I, t I gave a lecture at a high school in Cleveland in the United States, uh, and it was to a, a like a class of 16 and 17 year olds. And we were talking about social media and information. And I asked the question, where do you get your news? Do you get your news on social media? And they looked at me confusedly and they said, and, and I said, do you know what news is? And they said, <laughs> they didn't understand me. They didn't understand. Yeah. I, know what I'm I should be horrified at this. <laughs> yeah. But then I probed a little bit further yeah, and I yeah. said, so do you know about this event or that yeah. event? And it turned out that there was a girl in the class who was from Ukraine and like all of her peers were aware of the war in ukraine they all knew all about the they had all the information and they were they were actually really smart and really savvy they were well educated but they just didn't understand news 
they thought of it as something else. Yeah. They had another container in their minds for it that was like the things in the happen in the world, but it wasn't called news. It was, yeah. it yeah. was something else. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this is an entire conversation altogether. I wanted to, um, because you are again quite unique in in my in my um, lineup. Um, we talked about the fact that you are a photographer. You have done videography. You do cultural productions and interrogations of spaces and places. And I found them some of the most fascinating work, frankly, um, that um, I have associated with you. And I asked this in the context of an underappreciation of the humanities in the interrogation of all of what we are talking about. It's seen as a STEM-centric, highly data science-anchored uh, uh, field of study and work, and it annoys the hell out of me. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, you know, in all of what you've done, you know, over the decades, you know, how, how has that helped you kind of understand the world better and maybe also as importantly help people understand the world better? Well, I mean, I... It's a good question. I mean, I, 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 I'm a, I studied literary theory, you know, in undergrad and undergraduate work and political philosophy and history in graduate work. So I, I'm very, very much on the side of the humanities. And, um, and I think, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to say because to me, the, under under you know being able to perform deep analysis and deep readings and understand what context is and what subtext is and to take a, a set of ideas and to tear them apart and to understand like what a, a, a history of ideas might means and like that gives you a basis for being able to evaluate um claims whether that's a factual claim or whether that's a that's a, an opinion and um to me the things that are interesting about the online spaces that we're talking about are the uh, is that it's a deeply human space and by and human means what people get out of it how they absorb information how they absorb knowledge and that is intrinsically a humanities activity mm -hmm. so even though mm -hmm. the technology underlying it might be algorithmically driven or um or whether you know we're generating our news through a machine that's writing it it's still intended for a human audience of course, there's all this conversation around machine to machine converse, you know, information or the use of images by machines. And I'll leave that aside for a second, because obviously that is a second order question that uh, facilitates human, you know, existence and economies and so on and so forth. But people don't necessarily interact with that material or nor are they intended to. Um, so is there an underappreciation for that set of ideas? You know, probably to the extent there's an underappreciation for the humanities in the world, that's probably true. Um, I was reflecting uh, a little bit, I mean, it, it, that sounds very abstract, so maybe I can get concrete about it for a second. You know, when the Soviet Union, uh, when they when they produced their news, like the Soviet, Soviet era news, and was basically a narrator with B-roll. And if you know video, B-roll is, um, is uh, a scene that's something that's happening in the world um that is generally doesn't have its own soundtrack so then you would have this voiceover and then you would have images on the screen that were decontextualized and the narrator told you what was happening but you didn't hear sound there was no natural sound affiliated with it there was so it was in a kind of an authoritarian or a paternalistic way of creating information like we this is what you're seeing we're telling you what it is 
when I uh, first started working on in Russian television and Central Asian television, we did these current affairs and documentary uh, programs in which we focused on natural sound, first person representation. We would film people, have them say, this is what I saw, this is what I know, this is my experience, and we would show them and we would integrate them in a way that made it very clear, like, this is my life, lots of different vernaculars, different accents, different languages. And it was a, it's a radically different way of presenting information. And so it's, it's, it's a direct challenge to the state, to the idea that the state has a, has a, um, has a kind of a, a monopoly on what information is and how it's shared and on the ability to tell you what it is that we're looking at and how it's depicted. And instead you have a, a multitude of weak, of weak and fragile narratives. And there's a whole wonderful um, political theory of narrative that focuses on how a multiplicity of weak narratives is a health, maybe a, over the long term, like a, a healthier and saner way of designing our human experience. So this is a long-winded way of saying that, um, you know, that the ability to kind of think at that level yeah. is what excites me about this space and where I think it would be use it's useful to always kind of apply these humanities approaches. This is my penultimate question is uh, kind of trying to wind up. I feel I can talk to you for ages. Um, if we embrace the fiction for the purposes of our conversation that a lot of what we're talking today started with 2016 and on both sides of the Atlantic with uh, political uh, events on one side, a referendum, on the other side, a presidential election and what happened afterwards. Um, it was, I think, um, five or six years after the quote-unquote Arab Spring and the optimism that the world would be different and peace would bloom and blossom and then you had the pendulum shift to 2016 and then you had the um you know the uh, january 9th insurrection in 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 capitol hill uh, and that's one narrative you know and then you have in my own country what we call the argalaya which is a, a, a movement um from late march to say uh the 9th of uh, july and it's well it's not just understudied it's not studied Right. I mean, it's 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 it was one of the most fascinating things that I've studied in my life and will, I think, continue to study in my life. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is that you have this simultaneous interplay of hate, hurt and harm, uh, the pro-social and the antisocial, that which helps democracy as we understand it um, and that which hurts it and erodes it. Um, but that, to me, it it. It all seems to be gathering pace. You know what I'm saying? Like it all seems to be getting faster, both that which helps and that which harms. And, you know, you have a much longer gaze than I do in this regard. And what is accelerated for me may be an old, slower process for you um, with your, you know, long observation of media ecologies and ecosystems. The question I wanted to ask is, is social media somehow giving us a skewed sense of time as it were uh, and our perceptions of the world with a certain impatience without helping us understand that human nature evolution history context culture and all of what changes really um, is maybe if not cyclical we need to understand in a certain context well if time is a river then you're in a whirlpool right now 
right i mean of course but it's still you're still you're still part of that river um i think it's worth remembering that the arab spring the term was created was a term that was given to it was placed on the events by the west the the none of the people who i know who participated in it called it that they called it the arab uprisings yep and um when especially 20, january 25th a lot of people that i know in egypt when when the re that revolution happened they considered it a military coup not a revolution so um it was not necessarily the case that that optimism was coming from and for the most part it wasn't coming from the people that were experiencing it the people who were most aware of its fragility were the people who lived it and the narrative of its of this kind of utopian and collapsed narrative is a western narrative and it is a you know it's a christian narrative like all these things are yeah um as well it's a and so it's the it's the rise and then it's the fall and like but that's not the narrative that of the of the, the or the lived experience of the people who were participated in that universe and I, and i think that you know the i really wish we could get away from the um the kind of this this tale told about the california libertarians setting the terms for the debate and all of the people who in the last couple of years who have all made all these mea culpas and apologies for being overly optimistic and now being pessimistic i mean i'm just so sick of it because like they're not listening they're not paying attention to what happened before they're buying into a set of media tropes that were with that are external to the events themselves um that said i also think that you know the way we measure success or failure around these types of um mediated political movements is while while there's time is speeding up around them as they're happening there's a much longer um timeline of of events and uh, currents that are occurring underneath them so if we think about uh for example the two th the green revolution the green movement in iran in 2009 yeah yes yes it didn't change the outcome of that election but it created a language for iranians who participated in that to for to discuss their own ideas of what liberty might be what their freedoms might be um that next generation of people you know in another 10 years will be they'll be in their 50s they'll be the leaders of the country what will they do with that language that's the time to ask that question um the same the same idea the same is true with this first celebration and now denigration of leaderless movements that we've seen i think both were wrong right it is it is it is it is not possible to do the anecdata snapshot and say oh leaderless movements are bad because this one failed like most movements fail most of the time in all cases so what's interesting to me is is there any learning that happens each time within a movement and horizontally is the movement is the sri lankan case currently going to resolve itself in some kind of permanent change i doubtful right like some change will happen and then then the old human forms will kick in and the economy will return and people will be bought people will be sold you know there will be more islands built in the bay china will buy another harbor and you know and then we'll be like oh what was that thing what was that thing you know and then it will happen again but maybe each time i know i'm not i'm not a hegelian i don't believe yeah. in I don't believe in this kind of cycles of progress 
Yeah. There are cycles, but they don't necessarily lead to progress. And they aren't they aren't external to human behavior. Well, let me push you on that for my final question, though, because it was already about how to better harness our better angels, right? I mean, the global majority is bearing witness to a stage where the worst of it and possibly occasional stochastic, opportunistic things that are the best of it are also happening simultaneously. And there's this amazing interplay and richness, really, texture that a lot who parachute in don't quite grasp and will never grasp either. And, you know, again, you have both the vertical and the horizontal. You have a temporal lived experience, but you also have a deep granular connection. And I know, because I know you personally, a love for this is not just the work that you do. This is a love for what you do and where you've been at. Um, And I suppose the question was, what can one do at scale to ensure that what we live in today, and in a sense are hostage to, harnesses, champions, strengthens that which I suppose, you know, to make it personal, both you and I are fathers, right? I mean, how do we ensure that the systems today make for better ancestors for them? So, I mean, that's such a hard, if I knew the answer to that, I would, you know, I mean, what, I mean, the first thing I would, I would say is that we need, we need to figure out a way to stay present, to stay kind of rooted in the moment, to figure out how to experience that these changes as they happen, to document them in ways that are relatable, um, accurate, that capture all of the complexities of those moments, and then to try to keep living them. You know, that's that's a big ask, of course, and it's really, really hard to do at scale. It's hard. It's hard enough to do in your own life. Um, But figuring out a way to kind of to build and maintain a community or a society that still that is always has this kind of touchstone. It's not mythologized, but that is kind of aware of and celebrates the complexities of our of, you know, of these historical these historical moments and tries to take from them something that allows us to kind of build healthy societies. So that's, and that's a big ask. It's like, you know, I don't know, because it relies on, it's hard because it relies on many people agreeing to the same idea. It it relies on some version of homogeneity, some version of acceptance at, at, at a social scale that everybody has to buy into that idea. But how do you do that without also mythologizing mm. or creating false gods or um you know all of the all of the kind of the way that we have the way that nation states have tended to do this is they is precisely to build mythologies around patriotism around national symbols around images because they're convinced that people can't handle the full load of democratic of being full citizens and so there are all of these proxies civil symbols etc that stand in for um and simplify what it means to be an active participant or an active citizen in in a in a society, um, and if, and we haven't even begun to talk about the economics of it, which of course make things much harder. So, but so all I can say is, how do we sit with that? How do we live with it every day? How do we stay present in it without you know losing hope? Ivan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time out. And my pleasure as well. Thank you.